And we are recording. So welcome to the Biohacking Beauty Podcast. And we are with Sarah Marlett. Sarah, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Yes, um, thank you so much for having me. So my name is Sarah Marlett. I am the founder of Nourish Thrive Glow. And I am a certified holistic nutritionist and I am um, finishing up my master's in functional medicine and human nutrition. I created Nourish Thrive Glow, which I call NTG, to help people, people break through the noise of nutrition and have a realistic approach to health using tools opposed to rules. Okay, that's, that's amazing. And we were kind of talking before the podcast began and I was, uh, I was telling you I became a fan that, that I got to you through through Instagram, just, just for looking for, for uh, content for us. And your content was so compelling, I had to reach out and, and, uh, and try to do this podcast together. And I'll explain the agenda of the podcast a little bit so, so we have a clear line where we're going with this, even though I would, I would love it if we went wherever the conversation took us. But the idea is, so we started a skincare company that would, that would really be looking at the next level of skincare we felt like for over 20 years um, the products that were being used the molecules that were being used the claims that that were being claimed were pretty pretty generic pretty repetitive uh, we got sick of seeing just another vitamin c cream with maybe a few percentages more uh, each year coming out so uh, and we combined between the biohacking field which is a newer field which means in essence, changing the environment, whether within you or, or outside of you, in order to affect your biology, um, and skincare, and, and try to combine them, and that's what we're doing here. But we're very aware that the, the look of the skin or skin health is a very large field, that skincare is, is a very small part of it, even though, even though it does contribute. Um, a holistic approach, which is healthy living, uh, healthy habits, nutrition, etc., is definitely the way to go and definitely what you should be investing your time in if you're interested in your skin's health. Um, so the reason I, I got really drawn to you, Sarah, is because it's, it's almost in the name, right? Nourish, Thrive, Glow. It's, it's, it is the, uh, a third of, of your brand. And I would really like to pick your brains as far as how do, how do we achieve it? Like, what are the habits that a person should have, like every person should have in order to achieve beautiful skin and in general uh, health? And then, you know, I guess we can talk about uh, that and then see how we adjust it to certain people. But what are the uh, kind of, how do you see uh, someone who says, you know what, I want to take my skin seriously, I, I want to delay aging or improve my skin's health as much as possible, what tips would you be giving them or what healthy habits would you be telling them to do? So that's a great question. Um, from a holistic standpoint, it's a whole systems approach. So I am a big fan of gut health. So the first thing I would say, and this is just one piece of the puzzle because we could talk about too, if someone listening has is like, nope, I don't think it's my gut. You know, we know high androgen levels and overactive um, adrenal glands that's producing too much DHEA. These can all other be areas that 
would lead to unfavorable skin outcomes. But today I think it's important we talk about gut health because I feel like this is one of the main things that people overlook. So a little bit of a personal history for me is when my husband and I moved to Dallas, Texas from Lausanne, Switzerland. So we, we moved across the world to Dallas. And this is when I was hit with some pretty bad skin issues because of my gut. And no matter how many facials I got or how many like dermatologists I went to or creams, lotions, potions, it didn't matter. It was, nothing changed it. So for me, the number one thing is addressing gut health. Also by addressing gut health, we are addressing other areas of health too. So we are actually more bacteria than we are DNA. So this means as a human being, we are more bacteria than human. And this is something that um, there's still so much research evolving. But if I had to just pick one area to talk, speak with you about today, in regards to skin, it would be gut health. Um, We could talk about this for hours. And then if we added in more things, we could be here the whole day. So I would say gut health and um, we can talk more about it, but understanding what does, what is gut health and actually like, what is your gut microbiome? So the majority of your microbes are found in your large intestine. So we have microbes on our skin and in our oral, in our, in our mouth. But for the essence of today's chat, we can talk about the microbes that live in our digestive tract. Great. So, yeah, so let's start to talk about that. So let's assume, you know, we're starting from scratch. Um, and we're, we're imagining um, we're, we're imagining that someone who's, who's listening doesn't really understand um, what even the, the, the small intestine or, or the large intestine means. Is there a dif- is there a difference between them? And you know why? So, so are, maybe I'm, I'm scared. You said mi- microbiome in your gut. Maybe someone got scared. You know, maybe it's the first time they they know that they have uh, bacteria in their gut. Great question. So the large intestines, which is often also referred to as your colon, is very different from your small intestine, though your small intestine is not sterile. That, this is something that people often refer to if we're talking about a condition like small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, which we will come back to because this is also linked to rosacea, a skin disorder where you can use all the creams, lotions, and potions, but if you're not addressing the underlying cause, it's a Band-Aid. So the large intestines is where most of your bacteria live. Um, And these bacteria do incredible things when they're in balance, right? So we know that they can decrease inflammation, that they can help with weight loss, fat metabolism, energy. But when our bacteria becomes out of balance, which is known as dysbiosis, this is where inflammation can occur and skin issues can occur. Okay. And that balance is is between good and bad bacteria, right? It's not or lack of bacteria at all, right? Let's say we took a lot of uh, antibiotics or something like that, and then, so, so um, how do we know if we have a, an imbalance of gut bacteria? How does it manifest itself? What, should, what do we feel when we have uh, dysbiosis? That's a great question. So everybody will manifest in different ways. Um, just one thing off the bat that can put you at a disadvantage is if you are in a VSD section. So everything we do from the moment we come into the world has a profound impact on our gut health. Things like stress, antibiotics, NSAIDs, so um, ibuprofen, the type of diet you're eating, how much are you sleeping, how much are you moving, are you very restrictive with your diet can all decrease that symbiosis. So 
when we become out of balance, leading to inflammation. So when we talk about the gut there, we have our small intestines and then we have one single cell layer between our small intestines and our bloodstream. So when we have dysbiosis, this increases inflammation and increases your risk for leaky gut. And there, so are you, a lot of people hear this word. I feel like leaky gut is super trendy. My gut's leaky. I have leaky gut. Well, what exactly does leaky gut mean? So I know people can't see me, but right now um, I have my hands up and I'm showing you what typically our, a healthy gut would look like. They're these tight protein junctures and they're together, but not all the way together. So things like vitamins and waters, water can seep through, but with inflammation, which can be caused by dysbiosis, our gut becomes leaky. So these tight protein junctions start to open up like this and toxins and undigested food particles can now seep into the bloodstream. Remember, it's just that one, it's one cell thick between our small intestines and the bloodstream. So now if we're dealing with inflammation, if our gut health, the, the diversity of it is poor, this can lead to leaky gut, knowing that now undigested food particles and toxins are now seeping into our bloodstream and what lies in our gut over 60% of our immune system. So now our immune system is having a reaction, increasing inflammation. So if we were talking like acne, we know it's, it's inflammation. There's some type of inflammatory factor coming into play. So if yeah. somebody listening with this, listening to this is dealing with maybe some type of leaky gut and or dysbiosis, we know that could be a driving force behind their acne and other things too. Dysbiosis has also been linked to atopical dermatitis, also known as eczema. It's funny, that's what exactly I wanted to ask you. I actually have an anecdotal story about this. I, um, I due to an accident, uh, I had to go through a, probably like two months of antibiotics and I've never had, I've never had acne, maybe very mildly as, as a teenager, never had anything like that. And at 28 years old, after two uh, months of antibiotics, I started having skin issues, inflammation in my knees, in my Achilles tendon, crazy things that I've never experienced before. And it took me a few years to realize it was those antibiotics and, and kind of, you know, reverse engineer what happened there and treating it. Yeah. So I think that's a great point because a lot of us, I think people demonize antibiotics, but they can be life-saving. So I, I'm not a physician. So I always say check with your doctor, but yeah, that's huge because we know taking antibiotics disrupts our microbial diversity. And when we have a disruption in that, that is linked to gut dysbiosis and that can increase our risk for leaky gut. And it's, you know, in both of us, we live in America and uh, well, both of us, when did you move from, from Luzerne? Um, so I am American, but we were there yeah. a, a year ago. So yeah, we were, we were in Switzerland for about two years. Oh, okay, I got you. Yeah. So, so um, what I wanted to say is that, that in America, it's, it's very common to just take antibiotics and, and uh, that's it. But in other parts, especially in Europe, I've noticed that people, they have a whole re regimen that they're doing if they're taking antibiotics. So they would, would take either like prebiotics with it or probiotics. They're gonna try and kind of support that, that process not to get too much uh, gut damage. So is it something that does help? Uh, is there like a procedure that you can do to support your gut while, while uh, taking antibiotics? 
Absolutely. So you can take a couple hours after that a probiotic and probiotics can be tricky because it's all about brain specificity. So if somebody listening to this podcast has small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, SIBO, a lot of times people with SIBO fear probiotics because they're taking the wrong strain. So yes, a probiotic can be really helpful. And we can talk about strain specificity in, in a bit as well, but eating in a diet rich in plants, um, plants, some plants are full of what we call either prebiotics or they're colonic foods. And they create something called short chain fatty acids, which have been shown time and time again in research to decrease inflammation. So your body's inflamed, right? So eating a, a diet rich in plants, this can decrease inflammation. I know a lot of people listening to this who are on antibiotics are going to say, I cannot eat salads. They make me bloat try cooking your vegetables. And then people will say, well, I thought raw foods are better. There's more minerals in it, more antioxidants. If your body can't break down the food, you certainly can't absorb the nutrients. So think of cooking as the act of outside of your body. Um, and we could go back and forth on is raw better, is cooked better, but we need to do an individualized approach. So if you are listening to this and you're like, I can't tolerate veggies, they make me bloat, try cooking them, soups, stews, um, even you could blend them up in a smoothie as well. That's very interesting. And that, you know, so if someone doesn't get, doesn't have bloating from, from uh, raw vegetables, are raw vegetables better? It depends on the vegetable. So things like carrots, which are beta, they're carotenoids, are not true forms of vitamin A. They're pro-vitamin A, and they're actually better absorbed and converted when you cook them with a healthy um, source of fat. And same with um, tomatoes. They're actually, you have higher contents of certain nutrients when they're cooked. So it kind of depends. Cruciferous veggies, your dark greens, yes. But if we're talking about things like carrots and tomatoes, and this is where people can fall into this like restrictive approach like, should I be eating cooked? Should I be eating raw? I say kind of eat how you eat what you like too. I mean, we could go back and forth all day, like cooking kale is better because you're decreasing oxalate acid, but it's like, how do you feel and what do you enjoy? Okay. And what about daily supplementation on probiotics, prebiotics? There is a company here in Florida. Um, they're called Microbiome Labs. They're, they're a very cool company. And they have a whole system where you start with probiotics, you add prebiotics, then you add some kind of gut lining supplement. So where should a, a run of the mill person, just someone who wants to improve their health, um, what approach should they be taking? So I am a fan of supplements, but I use this example for people. Let's think of your body as soil. You're planting a garden. If you have crummy soil and you're buying all this expensive fertilizer and expecting to grow roses, you're just, you're gonna, you're just throwing your way. I do think that for certain gut protocols, yes, adding in things like prebiotics, probiotics are very helpful. L-glutamine, which is food for something called enterocytes that line our small intestines. But I think it's really important to get your nutrition and get your triggers under control first. Otherwise you are literally throwing money away. It's like you're taking poor soil, you're buying really expensive fertilizer and you want to grow like yellow roses and you're growing weeds. I understand why. So it's also important when we're talking about gut health to, to know that it's more than just the foods that you're eating. Um, it's how you're moving. How are you sleeping? Stress. So it's almost um, 
what I would call like a reductionist view to look at gut health is just what you're eating because it could yeah. be, it's also, how are you eating? When are you eating? Um, how are you moving? Are, are you, do you have IBS and you're doing like hardcore workouts? Um, all of these things come into play, but back to your original question. Yes, I do. I take a probiotic. Um, I take a strain called lactose bacillus raminose based on my current gut status. So I think probiotics can be tricky with that. Um, prebiotics are great too, though they can cause a lot of bloating or gas for people. So you need to be careful and you need to make sure that you're taking the right prebiotic. There's three main ones, um, FOSS, GOSS, and lactulose. So also working with a practitioner to help you um, because you could be overdosing on the wrong prebiotic and then feel like very uncomfortable, like gassy and bloated and, and it's almost working against you. So how would one know uh, the strains that they need to be taking? Is it something that you're gonna to have to go to a practitioner and kind of get it adjusted to you? I would say the easiest would be going to a practitioner, though you could do research. You could go on PubMed and type in your diagnosis and look through primary research. So you'd pull like randomized control clinical trials or prospective cohort studies. Um, but you could also just work with somebody. So I use a database called Probiotic Advisor, which was created by a PhD naturopath in Australia, where he takes the brain work out of it. I type in the diagnoses, it pulls up the strains and then the strains available where you are in the world. So it, it's, yeah, it's a lot easier than having to um, go through all of the research and look at confounding variables and all of those things. That's very interesting. So first of all, that's, that's a, a very good advice. So what, you, what would you say is a framework um, for healthy eating, because that's kind of kind of the other part of the equation. Obviously, uh, when we're working out and when we're, we're, we have a correct circadian rhythm, so our sleep is timed right, and uh, we're feeding our, our eyes the correct light and we're not exposing ourselves to, to, to um, what we call light pollution, a lot of things would help. But if we recenter back on, on, on diet, how does a where should a person start? The reason I'm asking that is because um, a few years ago, I, I, uh, I gave a talk in, in uh, St. Louis and we, we went, um, I don't remember why, we went to one of the malls in the uh, surrounding area of St. Louis and I was looking for something healthy to eat. And in the food courts of, of the, that shopping center, there was a place, which I don't remember the name, but it the, the connotation was a healthy food place. And the healthy food in the eyes of that business owner was uh, PB&J sandwiches. That, that was what, what was on the menu, white bread, crust cut off, and that was to them what, what was uh, healthy. So I, I, in my mind, I understand that there are a lot of people that have no idea even what health, healthy food or healthy eating means. So how does it look? What should the person be consuming on a regular Great question. And you, we originally started this podcast off with talking about our own biology, so our bio-individuality. So everybody will look a little bit different, but I would say plants first, right? The research is overwhelming. If you look at studies surrounding the Mediterranean diet, which is one of the most well-researched diets, one of the main pillars are 
plants. So even things like legumes, so beans, these all produce these short chain fatty acids, right? Decreasing inflammation. They're rich in polyphenols, minerals, vitamins, antioxidants, and then fats and proteins. So these are really just our three macronutrients. So carbs, fats, and proteins, all plants are carbohydrates. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And then healthy fats, right? We know fats are a precursor for hormones too. So, and it also allows our body to absorb fat soluble hormones. So healthy fats are critical. These also help you stay full and energized and satiated and healthy proteins as well. Remember proteins break down to amino acids. And in the beginning, we were talking about leaky gut and how that stems from um, tight protein junctures, malfunctioning, right? So we know for healing the gut, we need certain amino acids. So building your plate around vegetables, I tell all clients to set a goal, two out of three of your meals should be focused on veggies with some type of protein and then with some type of fat and then let the cards fall where they may. Then instead, if somebody invites you out to go for pizza, you go and you're not so obsessive about it because there are actual studies that show obsessive behavior in relation to food decreases real diversity. And what does that mean? It puts you at a risk for dysbiosis, that inflammation and leaky gut, which all stem back to skin disorders for some people. Would you recommend uh, everyone? So within, within that fr framework, would everyone uh, be, uh, be, would uh, intermittent fasting, and if you could talk about a little bit about that, would that benefit the entirety of the population or, or should certain people be more careful with it? Um, talk to me a little bit about that because that has been one of the most popular, yeah. you know, additions to, to, to nutrition in the last, in the last few years. Yes. Okay. So that is a loaded question. So we are going to break it down. So intermittent fasting, um, what you'll see in like social media and influencers is they typically will do a 16, eight method. So they're fasting 16 hours and they're, then they're eating eight hours. This is just one form of doing it. There are many ways to do it. Um, how you do it and your gender plays a huge role. So men have, it's more advantageous for a man to do fasting back to back long, like longer fast at 16, eight and working out in a fasted state where women, it really depends on your cycle, right? So I won't go down a rabbit hole, but we have our follicular and our luteal cycle and our follicular is our low hormone hormone phase where it's been shown more beneficial for women to maybe fast during this time. Um, Women need to be mindful when fasting. Doing long fast back to back have been shown to worsen our blood sugar response. A worse blood sugar response can also correlate to poor gut health. So if you're a guy, yeah, you can get more aggressive. If you're a female, not so much. And this is where things like cortisol, a stress hormone, affect us much differently than men. So I do think fasting is a great tool. I think somebody can do 12 hours fasting and 12 hours eating and that's still deemed fasting. I would never recommend fasting for underweight, under 18, pregnant or breastfeeding or history of eating disorders as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, when I will, in general, when I'm talking about when I'm using this platform to, to, when I was considering using this platform to talk about fasting, that was one of my worries, um, kind of encouraging people who already have eating disorders to, you know, to add another one to the list or to, to exacerbate. 
current ones. Um, so you're, but you're saying um, 12 hours and 12 hours is, is kind of something that everyone can, or, or most people could, could uh, play with. Now, are there certain hours that are better to fast in? I'll tell you why. For me, I train in the evening. I have like a two hour block where I train at and I finish training around 8, 8.30. And that's when I'm gonna have my meal. I'm trying to finish my meal around nine so I can fast until 1 p.m. the day after and have my 16 hour fast. My question is, is that a worse fasting method than maybe, you know, stopping at four and uh, resuming uh, eight the day after? I don't want to say it's worse because we all have our lifestyle and we all can only control so many variables of that. So that might be your only time to work out, right? You're an entrepreneur, you're busy, you're on the go. Um, but it could be more advantageous for people to have an earlier dinner to sync up with their circadian rhythm. So you had mentioned that in the very beginning. Um, so every single cell in our body is synced up circadian rhythm. And yes, the time of year plays a role based on how long the sun is out. But what happens is, okay, so your circadian rhythm is governed by two hormones, cortisol and melatonin. And cortisol is attacked when, for being like really bad. And it's only really bad when it's out of rhythm. So cortisol is what gets us out of bed in the morning and in its right function, it's anti-inflammatory. In the evening when the sun sets, our pineal gland sends out melatonin. We know, everybody knows, I think what melatonin is. It's when people buy it, the pill form to help them sleep. It trickles all the way down to your pancreas and binds on your pancreatic cells and tells your pancreas to start to turn off digestive and blood sugar function. So your pancreas does both endocrine and exocrine functions. So basically think of it, it's just harder for your body then. I use this analogy. You work a nine to five, your boss calls you at 7 p.m. and says, come back and work a double shift and perform at the same exact level. It's kind of like with your body. It's like, I was here all day primed and ready to eat. And now you want me to do a function that melatonin just told me like it's time to relax, but now you want me to eat food, break it down and digest it. So there are, there are actual studies, this is not anecdotal or a hypothesis, actual studies that show people who eat later in the evening have a worsened blood sugar response, higher insulin and impaired digestion. So this can relate to the next day bloating and gas and even constipation, which all, if we think about it, relate back to skin health too. A hundred percent. Um, so actually I had, a, it's, it's interesting. I kind of had a, uh, two questions, uh, for you while you were going through that. So, um, the first question, is there a difference there between men and women? Because for women, I feel like, um, the main, the main, you know, focus later on in life, you know, in your 50s and your 60s, is that hormonal, also before, but is that hormonal imbalance? And there is, you know, um, there are many studies that are being published right now as far as uh, circadian rhythm and hormonal health. So how important, is there an extra kind of layer of importance to thinking up your, your uh, meal times if, if you're looking into that? based on gender? Yes, based on gender. 
So all of the studies show um, the groups that are eating later at night, it's, it's a mix of both men and women. However, there are studies that show men who skip breakfast seem to be okay. But some women who skip breakfast have an increase in cortisol, right? So now they're getting that double whammy of cortisol and has been shown to increase um, late night eating. And even if women who are in their reproductive years, there was one study that showed when they continue to skip breakfast, this resulted in a shift and almost in um, shifts in their menstruation cycle. So are more sensitive to stress based on a certain neuropeptide. So I think we need to be more mindful. I think a good rule of thumb for some people is just try it out, set a goal to have an early dinner once or twice, twice a week and see how you feel. And everybody wants to know what is early. So a good rule of thumb, I would say aim to have dinner three hours before bed, especially if you're dealing with things with, with like GERD, right? That acid yeah. And uh, okay, and is there specific foods that you'd be eating at your last meal, maybe to stay satiated longer? Great question. So um, you, a lot of us fear carbohydrates in the evening, but there are actual studies that show certain carbs increase serotonin, which increase melatonin. So I say make don't make dinner your heaviest meal. So I, I say don't make, make dinner your meal. And what I mean by that is don't sit down to foods that make you feel bloated and tired because in mm -hmm. turn, your digestion needs to work overtime. So eating foods that make you feel good and adding in the carbohydrate. I think a lot of us don't understand carbohydrates and we forget that our gut, our GI also has endocrine functions where it releases satiety hormones too. So I would say getting in those veggies, um, some healthy protein, some healthy fats, and some type of more, maybe a starchier carb, like a, like a sweet potato, if you have trouble sleeping. Um, so mm -hmm. pretty much all meals will look similar around that foundation of your, your veggies, your protein, and your fat. But if you love pasta, maybe don't make your entire meal around pasta. Don't make your meal so heavy. That's what I mean. I'm not saying like eat like a bird. I'm saying don't eat foods that make you feel bloated and weighed down because think about it, who has to do all of that work, your digestion, and when is it going to do that? Now it has to do it while you're sleeping when it really wanted to go into that rest and repair. And your mm -hmm. liver is actually most active at night. So your liver is part of our detoxification system, right? But then if we're doing all this digestion, it's sending mixed signals to all of your organs. And what would you, what would you say to someone, this, I'm going to ask another loaded question, we're kind of circling, we're, we're kind of doing the, the natural route and then we're talking about supplements all the time, but I'm, I'm gonna do it again. So uh, melatonin supplementation, you know, as, as a, an amateur athlete, the, uh, the, let's say the athletic world, there are some crazy publications about people taking huge amounts of melatonin um, on a regular basis, claiming it doesn't, it doesn't bother them at all, it doesn't bother them creating melatonin or, or or uh, creating dependence. Other studies saying, you know, be careful, be careful about the, um, the, the amount of melatonin you're taking. So what are the, uh, what do you see about melatonin supplementation? That's a great question. And I like how you also brought in sort of that athletic performance. If people listening follow like Ben Greenfield, he'll talk a lot about taking a lot of melatonin when he travels for jet lag. I am very much, I have a much more cautious and more in my approach. So I don't think we should get dependent on anything. And I think if melatonin is the only reason, the only way you can sleep, maybe we take a step back and try to 
understand the underlying factors. Is it anxiety? Is it you have poor sleep hygiene? So I do think tools like this, I, I use a like CBD GABA, which is a neurotransmitter helps with the relaxation, which has melatonin in it, which helps me sleep, but it shouldn't be something that people are like, oh my gosh, I can't out it. So that's sort of where I am. I think I know what you're saying, that there's research on both sides. So I think athletes, elite athletes are in their own a world of their own. So more for like the general person, it's like, well, what's, what's causing this underlying stress that you can't sleep? Because know that that's also impacting your gut health because our gut and our brain are connected via the vagus nerve, which is the longest cranial nerve in the body. So know right off the bat, if you have really bad anxiety and you can't sleep, there is disruption going on in your gut, right? And this could be altering your gut microbial diversity, leading to dysbiosis, leading to leaky gut. So I think we also have to stop looking at things in such a reductionist view, like, oh, I can't sleep. Okay, fine. We all have those nights and it's okay to take some things, but ultimately if you can't sleep without it, what's your underlying cause? Like, are you on your phone too much? Could be the simple ones, but there's also more deep rooted issues. I understand it's it's very interesting. One of your your tips that I really liked is taking a few deep breaths before the meal in order to activate the vagus nerve. Are there other uh, kind of tactics that we can do to act to kind of prime our vagus nerve, maybe before a big meal or something like that? Um, you, you, which sounds funny, and you can like gargle. Have also been shown to prime your vagus nerve, and I also think eating eating with people. And I know it's Corona and COVID and we're all locked down, but like even Zooming, doing like Zoom or calling somebody. I think a lot of us, and what I really learned from living in Switzerland was how much more Europeans enjoy their meal times. And then you come back to the States and it's like a, like a sprint, like who can finish their meal the fastest. And we don't realize that that's going to disrupt everything, including that vagus nerve. And if you are listening to this and you are somebody with IBS, know that you studies have shown that there's a vagal tone um, deficiency. So things like, okay, you don't have to sing or gargle, but the deep breaths and then being in a setting that makes it enjoyable. Food should be, almost be like eating our meals should be ceremonious where so many of us are just scarfing it down, thinking it's organic and it's GMO. I'm going to have perfect health, but your body doesn't work like that. Like, right. Like, so now you're rushing all of these processes. And as a human, we know when we rush things, when we rush tasks, we don't do it that well. Same with your digestion. That's funny. Uh, that one of my biggest challenges, me, me personally, is is uh, chewing slowly and and, and trying to uh, trying to uh, eating slowly. As a, as a and you know as a person that's trying to do a lot during their day, it's almost like yeah. a, it's almost like a. Um, I, I I feel very guilty, you know, eating slowly, and um, so. What would you say? What's the, what are the, what are the, how many, you know, how many times should I be chewing my food? Is there, is there really, should you go that granular or, you know, what is the, an easy way to approach it? So, yes, we could go granular and I could say, try to chew 20 to 30 times. And then people like you who are entrepreneurs and busy, they're like, that's just not possible. Like, Okay, well, let's shift maybe what you're eating. In the very beginning, I talked about eating cooked vegetables over raw if you're dealing with GI issues. Same if you're really, really busy. So raw veggies contain cellulose, the plant cell wall. And as humans, we lack that enzyme to break it down, right? So how can we work with the body opposed to against it? So the art of doing less. So maybe you grab a smoothie. 
fibers blended up, but you're still getting it. Maybe it's a soup, maybe it's a stew. Maybe you take a digestive enzyme, not because you're reliant on them, but more to help your body break things down. And when you're looking for digestive enzymes, you wanna look for, you want it to have amylase, lipase, and protease. So your the enzymes that your pancreas would produce so to break down protein, fat, and carbs. I got you. Actually, I wanted to, I'm really interested in your, I was really interested coming up, coming into this conversation to talk to you about digestive enzymes and apple cider vinegar, which is something you're, you're, you're really uh, um, promoting. So my question is, is it, is it again, something you are doing continuously, like before every meal, are you taking them? Um, is it only before big meals? What is your approach with like pre-meal prep, whether digestive enzymes or apple cider vinegar or anything else? Okay, great question. So when I was healing my gut, I was taking digestive enzymes before most of my meals. So if we think of digestion, it's a series of communication. So if your gut, if there's issues going on in your large intestines along your small intestines that epithelial cells, microvilli become damaged. So your pancreas Think of it like that AOL dial-up. If you have issues with your gut, it's taking a while for your pancreas to realize what's going on for it to release some of those enzymes. So yes, when I was healing my gut, I was taking pancreatic enzymes quite frequently. Now that I've healed my gut, I only take digestive enzymes, which are enzymes, digestive enzymes, before I'm going out to dinner where I don't have control over what I eat to give my body that health breaking foods down. Um, Taking a digestive enzyme is something that has helped food intolerances, which are not mediated by your immune system. So they're not helpful for dealing with allergies or sensitivities. They're semi-helpful, but they're not as helpful because if you're dealing with a food intolerance, it's because you lack the enzymes to break it down. So your original question is, I will take a digestive enzyme if we're ordering in takeout or before going out to dinner. And then apple cider vinegar, there aren't a ton of studies showing its efficacy on gut health. However, there's a ton of studies that helps with blood sugar regulation, improving your body's response. So keeping insulin in check. So I would like to do um, about a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar and about 16 ounces of water before going out to dinner and drinks to keep blood sugar in check. You could also do this. I like to do it in the morning too. I have become accustomed to it. I actually enjoy the taste, which I know I'm in the minority, but you can also do it if you're having a late night dinner at home. Again, getting back to that circadian rhythm where our pancreas has been told to start to turn off. We know the pancreas is responsible for blood sugar. So having some apple vinegar beforehand can just help the pancreas in its response. Um. Amazing, but is there is there is there any danger of taking, you know, digestive enzymes all the time or apple cider vinegar? If someone says, you know, whatever, now I want to, um, you know, drink it all the time. Let's say apple cider vinegar. Is that is that an issue? So we, yes, it, it depends too. Like if you have any underlying issues, and um, I I'm not a dentist, obviously, but we do know your teeth. So I should have said that I always do it through a straw. Um, but if you, if you don't start to feel well, when you're taking something, I would definitely pull back and same with digestive enzymes. These are not meant to be taken unless you're working under a physician's care long-term, right? Because our body has the ability of producing these enzymes. We just figure out why it's not working. 
Okay, and how do you drink apple cider vinegar? Do you just you, you just do a little shot or do, do you put it in water? No, I put it in water, <laughs> yeah. So I will do um, like 16 ounces of water. I like to put a little lemon in it. It helps with the flavor. Also, lemon will give you a little bit of like vitamin C. Um, and then I drink it through a straw. I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, I, I definitely do it through a straw. Um, I like, I'll ask my dentist, I'm like, how's my enamel doing? And, you know, she'll say like, okay, like don't go crazy with the lemon and the apple cider vinegar because they're acidic, even drinking through a straw. So I think it's always important too, to like check with your doctor and just not do something because someone like me does it. And let's imagine we're talking, we're talking about me and, and you know, I'm starting my, my uh, feeding phase or my eating phase at 1 p.m., would I be waiting until one, would that break my fast, technically? Apple cider vinegar? Yes. So it depends on what you're fasting for. So if you're just fasting for more of like meta to be metabolically flexible, I would say no. I allow up to like 40 to 50 calories. If you're fasting for autophagy, um, there's not a ton of research on it. So a lot of people say like anything will break your fast. So you just have to do water, even if you took like fish oil capsules. So if you're just more doing it, like more metabolically flexible and giving your body that break, I would say that's fine. Also, if you're waiting that long to eat, it could be advantageous to take the apple cider vinegar before you eat. Because when we go a long time, when we're fasting for longer amounts of time, we are actually prone to be more insulin resistant when we go to break a fast, depending on how we break it, because our body's been without it for so long. So I do a, like a little hack I'll do is I'll have apple cider vinegar before I break my fast. And obviously not all the time when I remember, or if it doesn't sound good, I just don't do it. That, that's an excellent question. Uh, that's an excellent answer. Um, I wanted to ask you about, so, uh, is there a better way of breaking the fast as far as, you know, we didn't feed our, our body for a long time. Uh, there are some, some studies that show that the nutrition of breaking the fast is maybe as important as the fast itself. And maybe if you can talk about that, you know, if you're a cheat meal, maybe it shouldn't be just after the fast or maybe it should. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So this would be referred to as nutrient timing. And to your point, how you break your fast is so critical. This is the number one mistake I see with people when they fast, even if it's just like that 12 hour fast is how they break their fast. So breaking breakfast stands for breaking the fast. So we're looking at the science and we're looking at the literature, you're looking at your first meal, which would be called breakfast. Research shows that people who go lower carb, higher fat, higher protein, don't only don't only feel more satiated, they have increased energy, decreased cravings, and can go about three to four, maybe five hours between meals, right? So they're elongating their eating window, which is important if you're dealing with digestive issues such as SIBO, because we have something called a migrating motor complex that takes three and a half hours to do its job. So if you're constantly eating back to back to back, this can disrupt the motility. Um, so I personally like to go a little bit lower carb, though I keep plants and plant fiber high than with um, high protein and then some fat. So just to keep blood sugar steady, to keep, when I say blood sugar steady too, to keep insulin in check, to keep cravings in check and to keep my energy, right? Like I want to, I want to feel good throughout the day. Would you be adding something like, uh, would you be uh, drinking something like a bulletproof coffee? 
is that something you would do or do you recommend maybe not doing that? So I see the benefits of bulletproof coffee, but if we take it back to gut health, there have been some studies that show when we eat really high fat meals, this can induce um, the absorption of lipopolysaccharides, so toxins. So it endotoxins. So it really depends on the person um, and their current gut health, their current gut status. If someone's like, I, I'm good, I don't have any of that, I would say, okay, can you maybe add in like a little bit of fiber so they can feed those short chain fatty acids? So I mean like acacia fiber, which is one of the more gentle, gentler fibers. Um, so I do a bulletproof here and there. I add a little bit more in, um, but if you're dealing with some pretty hardcore gut issues like gut dysbiosis, I would not recommend grabbing a bulletproof coffee. So just maybe like black coffee, what would you, what kind of coffee they should be drinking? So coffee is interesting because we know it can, it affects everyone differently. And I'm, I, I could go down a rabbit hole and I'm not going to. So I would say add a little bit of fat and try eating it with your meal if you're dealing with gut issues. Like a little bit of um, like almond milk. So just like a little bit, but not going such high saturated fat, um, like with a Bulletproof coffee. I saw that you were taking a glutathione supplement. I tried pouring one time glutathione into my coffee. That was a uh, one of my most disgusting experiences. Experiences. It's so bad. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, no, I take it um, on an empty stomach more than night. So for those listening, glutathione is our master, our body's master antioxidant, and it's three amino acids. So it'd be referred to as a tripeptide, something that our body can naturally produce, and it helps as it says, antioxidant. So it helps with oxidative stress. Um, yeah, I imagine that did not taste well. <laughs> not at all, actually. So one of the products we're working on is, is a product, skin product with glutathione in it that would be able to kind of penetrate your skin barrier. And our biggest challenge is the smell. You cannot, you know, we don't want to use anything like an artificial smell. But one of our biggest challenges is how smelly glutathione is. So, uh, yeah, actually, so speaking about uh, glutathione, I had a question about, uh, is it something you are taking all the time? Yes, so I take glutathione every day. Um, so if we're talking about like toxins, look, we live in a very toxic world, air, water, and it's, it's just naive to think you could live a 100% toxic free life. And compounding with emotional and internal stress, we know that creates that oxidative damage, right? So I take glutathione every morning and every night. I'm also a realist. I like pizza and I like wine. We know those are, can create oxidation in the body. So I do take it every day, morning and night. And is there a difference between a liposomal version, so something that is coated with a with a with a uh, li li lipocoating or uh, non-liposomal? Do you recommend the liposomal version? Yeah, that's the one I take because it has been shown to increase absorption, but um, I don't think, I, I also know like it's a little bit more expensive and things of that nature. So I like to meet people where they are if their only choice is maybe a different form, that's okay too. I understand. What other supplements are you taking on a regular basis? 
Okay, that's a really good question. And I want to preface my response with we are all individuals and I am not advocating that you take what I take. So I take adaptogens in the morning. It's a mix of rhodilia and ashwagandha. So rhodilia has been shown in studies to be helpful for anxiety and ashwagandha has been shown to balance cortisol levels. Um, vitamin D3, uh, a probiotic that's specific to my current condition, glutathione. I also am anemic. So I take iron um, and then I also have the MTHFR gene variant, the heterozygous. So I do take a methyl balance as well. And then some other like biohacking things, but I realize they're extra. So I kind of just keep those off to the side. Have you ever tried to take anything like NAD or NAD precursors? Yes. Um, I actually take one that's mixed with um, from Quicksilver Scientific. So I really like that brand. That's the glutathione I use. I've taken that. I also have an AMPK, which is our body's master antioxidant. And we can activate it through movement, apple cider vinegar. So this is where I realized the extra supplements I take are exactly that. They're extra. So I kind of don't always share them because um, it can be overwhelming. I'm in the space, so I sort of understand how it impacts things like our Krebs cycle, um, mitochondrial biogenesis. So do I think everybody needs to be taking this? No. And it's also, you know, there is also a cost to these things. But yes, I like to dabble on that. 100%. My issue... So we'll go, that, that is kind of my, uh, my nerdiness, right? Because what we've based our company around is, is skincare that is, that is providing NAD for the skin and, and, and uh, supporting that elevation of NAD with resveratrol or other um, sirtuin genes or anti-aging gene activators. So my, my issue with, and I agree with you, by the way, the, pro, the main problem right now as far as uh, supplementation is, is pricing. And um, uh, there, is, there is maybe one or two companies in the world that, that are literally making NAD precursors and then they're, you know, they're controlling the price. Uh, my issue with, with um, something like Quicksilver is that per dose, and that's an amazing company, I'm a fan. Um, my issue is that 50 milligrams per dose of, of NAD, which is, and you're supposed to do it and you're supposed to, uh, to put a drop under your tongue, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is another interesting, interesting subject, which is uh, um, trying to bypass the liver. But um, so my, my two issues with that, number one is that price per milligram, because mm -hmm. most studies, and we should really preface that, that 99.9% of studies done on life extension in general, and especially about supplementation, were done on animal models, which right. then you extrapolate, then you extrapolate um, a dosage to, to humans, but it doesn't really, doesn't really work that way. Um, so my, my issue is, is that in order to see great benefits, we should be, according to animal models, taking about a gram a day, so a thousand milligrams a day. And that is going to cost around $200 a month. And I'm being, right. being, being optimistic right now. Um, and then everything to support that. So that's number one. And the number, and the second thing is about uh, precursors. So um, NAD as is, is a, is a molecule, it seems like the body would, would recycle 99% of it back to normal B3 in the liver. And then just gonna, this B3, B3 is gonna travel in your system and get uh, converted. Some of it's gonna get converted back into NAD. 
Um, so I've, I've really been a major proponent of those precursors who directly get turned back into NAD uh, for the most part. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit what we tried to do because the, uh, because the uh, sublingual version is interesting. So uh, a few companies alive by nature, which now are alive by science, uh, they kind of started with this and um, uh, Quicksilver are doing it, which they're saying, look guys, you know, again, animal models show that most of the supplement you're gonna take is going to stay in your liver. And like 95%, 90% of it's gonna stay in your liver. The rest is gonna just sporadically disperse through your body, throughout your body. And through taking it uh, sublingually, maybe we can bypass that process which is awesome. And that's what we tried to do when we created a cream, right? Instead of having your liver process it, we tried to deliver it directly to where you would, you would want it. Um, so I love this approach. I wish for us as well, because we, we, we try to give as much value as possible. I wish price it was, would, would slowly uh, decline. And we are, we are seeing it. You know, one of the biggest players in that field is Nestle. Mm-hmm. Which did they're you, in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. In Switzerland. Did, did, yeah, you know did you know that they're, they actually published a study in Nature uh, Journal about NA, NR, about the precursor of NED. They're, they're one of the biggest investors in that space. I didn't know that, but I know when I was living in Switzerland in Lausanne, so many people worked for Nestle and they just recently acquired um, Vital Proteins. Okay. So yeah. yeah, Nestle is a very big uh, player in that. And actually, even as far as we're concerned, you know, in our little community, even Quicksilver getting into the market is a, is, is, is a boost. But we are start, starting to see um, NAD um, becoming more popular. You know, Thorn, which is a big supplement company, kind of started Mind Body Green uh, as, a, as, a, as a sister company of theirs. That are dealing a lot with NAD and how it how it translates to beauty. So that I love to see in that space. Um, so kind of I have a question that I want to ask you before before we before we run out of time, even though we don't really have the time. But before you know we're gonna wrap it up, which is a biohacking question. So it is a kind of a, a longevity question, if you would. Um, what are you seeing as far as metformin? I'll tell you why I'm asking that. Again, I looked at all your stories. I, I, I was very interested in, in your uh, page and you were talking about a, a woman that, that uh, had type two diabetes and has through, through uh, supplementation and nutrition kind of went off metformin. And, you know, I was curious, are you recommending people getting off metformin? Is it, does it, you know, because, and we can talk about metformin and, how, and the anti-aging benefits that are starting to be associated with it. And then um, is it, does it depend on their physical activity levels? What are you seeing with metformin? That's a great question. So when I work with clients, I meet them where they are. And so I never personally take anybody off a of medication. It's always in conjunction with their MD. And I think that's really important for anybody out there listening. Um, it's important to always work with your physician. So one of her goals was to get off metformin, right? There are some side effects attached to it. And she wanted to improve her blood sugar, her insulin, right? And so we know it's, we know elevated levels of insulin and blood sugar are precursors for obesity and other core morbidities, which she had type two diabetes, cardiovascular issues, which 
aging, right? There's no other way around it, but your body is aging. So she to reverse that, right? She, she wanted to heal her body and get to a place where she could get off the medication. So if we're talking about things like insulin resistance, yes, things like um, genetic variability. So polymorphisms play a role as do your genetics. But a lot of us, it's something that we don't, we, you don't wake up with it, right? It's everything you do daily and you get there. And the high being hyperglycemic and the ups and downs of blood sugar, if we're talking about longevity and aging, that's aging your body, right? It's aging your cells. It's decreasing mitogenesis. So with pharmaceuticals, and I'm not knocking pharmaceuticals, there are people that need to be on it. I'm just saying that it, it doesn't, it's not delaying the aging process, right? It, it's helping somebody with an underlying but it's not reversing anything in that case, right? They have to be on it like long-term, same if like you're on the Lipitor and things like that. So I think by addressing the imbalance of her homeostasis in this specific case, we were able to work her backwards and it didn't happen overnight and it, and it took time and effort and dedication. And I tell everybody it's not going to work unless you want it to, but she was, she was determined to get off of it. And I said, I will help you as much as I can in conjunction with your physician. And that's sort of how that got brought about. So I think it's important. And I know Dr. Mark Hyman talks a lot about this too, about how type two diabetes is it's like, it's a, a new it's a new diagnosis. It wasn't back around hundreds and thousands of years ago, right? It's something that fallen victim to based on our access to food and things like socioeconomic factors play a role. Um, but getting back to your original question is we know that those long-term side effects of prescription medications can decrease longevity can result in manifest in other disorders then. Yeah, you know, um, in Silicon Valley, uh, we, we were seeing a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of people starting to take metformin for their, um, for their kind of an anti-aging um, regimen. And most of them are off it now because of research coming out, showing how it is blunting the effects of, uh, of, tr of training, mainly, mainly uh, anaerobic training, but, but, but also, any kind of training, it's kind of, um, you know, double, doubly hormetic. We're seeing it a lot actually where, so, you know, you, you could probably explain it better than I do, but hormesis in a, in a one sentence is basically what doesn't kill you, make you stronger, but but for, for, for us as humans, so low levels of stress will kind of improve us. And um, from what we're seeing is that it's, it's kind of an overkill, right? Like mm -hmm. to take metformin and to train and to eat right, etc. It kind of becomes an, an, an overkill. Yeah, and it, like if you're talking about things like exercise and fasting, which are hormetic stressors, which we're like, wow, this is great, but everything's good in those small amounts. This is where I see so many issues, especially with women, where they take the fasting, they're like, but it's a good stressor, and then they take the exercise, but it's a good stressor. Maybe they do a little bit of calorie restriction, but it's a good stressor, and all of their stress starts to compound. And while there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue, there is adrenal dysfunction, and there you can have really chronically high um, cortisol, which then we know is linked to insulin resistance and to weight gain. And even high levels of cortisol are linked to an increase in pathogenic bacteria in your gut with a spillover of neuro 
epinephrine. So it's, I think as a society today, more than ever, we're like, well, if a little bit is good, more is better, more is better, more is better. And that's why we see so much burnout in our society. And getting back to when I lived in Switzerland, there was so much more balance there. And then moved back to the States. It's so like, we live and die by like hustle hard. And it's like hustle hard the body burns out and then all of a sudden somebody has like low thyroid function or their adrenals aren't working properly and then they have intestinal permeability that leaky gut and you just become a mess and it's like everyone's like but I didn't eat that poorly but I didn't think I did this that wrong and it's like well you've compounded your stress to a point where your body is like you're a car and you're on the highway and you're hitting going as fast as you can on an empty tank like what do we expect how do we think our physiology is going to respond it's out of it's out of energy it's out of gas Yes, it's very amazing. So, so to ask you kind of to, to, to wrap it all up and, and uh, to ask you a little bit about, about you, uh, who, who is the person that should be reaching out to you to maybe get your guidance? Is it anyone who wants to improve their health? Do you deal with specific people? How do people reach you? Yeah, so I... I do have a few male clients, though most are women dealing with hormonal imbalances, gut issues. So SIBO, IBS, IBD, Crohn's, um, gut dysbiosis, leaky gut, blood sugar issues, PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. So while I predominantly work with women, I have a few men and you can reach me at Nourish Thrive Glow. You can type me into Google. I have a website, find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, and I've also done some podcasts like with you to which I'm, I'm uh, very thankful. So is it, is it something only um, Texas, uh, people from Dallas should be, should be uh, thinking of, or, or do you do it also online? Great question. No, I have, I, I, everything is virtual. So I have clients all over the world, Switzerland, Asia, Africa, the States, Canada. So yeah, wow. so it's really cool. I, I attribute that to Berlin where I met so many amazing people. Um, that I've sort of been able to sort of help people from all over the world, which is really great because that's why I got into nutrition was to help people. And that is kind of where you're, you're planning to take it is more online support and help. Where is, where is your business headed to? Yeah, so most of everything I do, especially with Corona, is online. Though if you guys are in Dallas, I meet with people in person in Dallas. But um, I think the, from an to be accessible, it's much easier to do things online where I can reach and help more people. Amazing. Listen, Sarah, I think I would love if, if uh, we did another podcast in a few months uh, and kind of revisit a few things and maybe do do a uh, deep dive into, into one specific subject because I feel like I didn't even scratch the surface with you. You have so much knowledge and applied knowledge as well you're, 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 and that's something I, I, I uh, messaged you as well I feel like you are a, a solid example of the results that you can get if you led a very healthy life uh, your level of energy obviously how, how your skin look how, how you look so thank you for for being a, a live example to how we should behave and what are the results we should expect or we can expect. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's, you have to trust the process. So I have been there in the very beginning. I said my skin was a mess when we moved here. I've dealt with things. I think trusting the process and trusting an evidence-based approach can lead you down the right path. 
Amazing. So uh, that's going to be us for today. Thank you again very much, Sarah. And uh, we will keep in touch. And also during this week, we're going to be, I'm, I'm going to be kind of focusing on a few things that we talked uh, in this conversation, trying to explain it to the, to the layman a little, a little bit more. Maybe, uh, maybe you will be helping me with that. And we'll see where we're taking it. Great. Much for having me. Thank you again. And thank you.